It's official, we have survived the first week of the new year. Well done, you. I hope you're feeling wonderfully content and ready for what the rest of the year has got in store for us. And I'm super excited to be heading into it with you right by my side. So we're pretty much at the start of the year, right? New year, new you? Well, how many times have you planned to implement some fabulous new health regime that's going to change your life, only to see it fall off after the first couple of days? There are so many wonderful things we can be doing for our health. And to be honest, if you're listening to this podcast, you likely know many of them. The challenge is making them stick and making them a habit. That's where Dr. Amantha Imber comes in. She's an organizational psychologist and the founder of behavior change consultancy Inventium. For her latest book, The Health Habit, she's gone deep into the science and psychology of healthy habits and how to make them stick. By the end of this episode, you'll have some brilliant health habits for the new year and you'll know exactly how to commit to them. Now, this special bonus episode is brought to you by my dear friends at YouFoods. Here at That's Helpful, you know I'm all about the simple shifts that immediately make life easier, healthier and more enjoyable. YouFoods is one of them for me. They take the stress out of meal prepping and take on the mental load and make sure your meals are fresh, healthy and nutritionally balanced. If you're looking to make a healthy habit this year when it comes to healthy eating, you foods could well be the answer you're looking for. They're always adding new meals and tweaking recipes to keep it even more delicious than ever. And best of all, there's no cooking, no dishes, no cleaning up. Every week you choose from 60 meals, let gourmet chefs whip them up for you and have them delivered to your door fresh, never frozen. Make sure to use my code HELPFUL for up to $200 off your first five boxes. I'll put that into the show notes and you'll find a link there too. Amantha, you've written, previously written about productivity and innovation and lots of you know, brilliant things to help us with, our, with the work side of things. Why did you decide to now write a book about health? Oh, it's such a good question. So, I mean, health is something that I've always been very passionate slash obsessed with. Um, both, <laughs> both my parents had quite big health scares when I was younger. And I, I think that wow. reframed how I saw health. And mm-hmm. when, you know, when I think about my values and my priorities in life, health is always number one. I just think unless your health is in place, then mm-hmm. you just, you're no good to anyone or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but my work, like, in terms of my work through Inventium has typically been about helping people improve the way that they work and changing behavior and changing habits. And I was, I was um, probably about a year and a half ago now, I was thinking, you know, what's my next book going to be about? And, you know, I was sort of thinking "Mm, health would be kind of interesting, but I mean, there are so many books on health, but then I was kind of thinking about that because what typically happens and also typically around this time of year in January yeah. is that all of these new books on health and diets and other fads like litter the bookshelf at walls and tables and people buy them and they read them and then nothing actually sticks because the next month they're out buying the next kind of faddish health book. And I thought, that's, you know, that's really interesting. And I've had the same kind of failures as well when I've bought books on health. And then in the meanwhile, I was thinking there's this whole other section of the bookstore that's all about habit change. 
So there are all these, you know, great books about how to change behavior, how to change your habits, how to get better habits, how to break bad ones. And I was thinking, isn't it strange that those two types of books have never actually met and, and kind of formed a book baby? And I thought that would be really useful, you know, talking about what are the most impactful changes that we can make to say how we sleep and how we move and how we eat. But then importantly, understanding from a psychological point of view, what's getting in the way because it's different mm. for everybody. There's no one size fits all. And then going, okay, based on where you're at, this is going to be the best way to make this new health habit stick. And so that is how I came up with the idea for the book. I want to start with some of the habits that we can introduce because they're, they're really simple, like I said, and very helpful. And then let's get into how we can actually make sure we keep doing them. So let's start with sleep. One of the big things that you talk about in the book when it comes to sleep, like we get so hung up on going to bed on time, but actually one of the things you talk about is a consistent rise time. Why is that so important? Well, let's just take the life in, in, a, in a typical person. So a typical person probably works a full-time job. It's probably around nine to five in terms of hours if we're talking averages. And so therefore, you're probably getting up to go to work um, probably at about, you know, six or 7 a.m., let's say, probably on the earlier side if you're a parent and you have little kids. And that's pretty consistent during the week because we typically start work at the same time every day. But then on the weekend, what typically happens is that you don't have any work commitments. So you think, I'm mm -hmm. just going to sleep in a little bit because, you know, hopefully my kids will just entertain themselves uh, if they do. I mean, if they do that, then you're very lucky. Let's just say that. Um, but, um, you know, you might sleep in a couple of hours easily, like till 8 or 9 a.m. That is not unusual. But that's actually having a really big impact on your sleep. So if um, I'm based in Melbourne and I will – um, every now and then travel to New Zealand for work. And New Zealand's two hours um, time difference in terms of Melbourne and, and Auckland. And whenever I go to New Zealand, I always think two hours, that's fine. Like, yes, it's a time <laughs> difference, but I don't need to worry about jet lag because I'll totally be fine. But then when I get there, I'm like, why am I feeling like having you know, lunch when it's breakfast or vice versa, depending on which way I've gone. Um, why am I staying up way past my usual bedtime and not feeling sleepy when I should? And it's because that two hours makes a really big difference. And then, of course, on the way back, I also get surprise, unexpected jet lag. Like why this is a surprise <laughs> still, I do not know. But the exact same thing is happening if you're having a weekend sleep in. It's pretty much like going from Melbourne to New Zealand every weekend having a bit of jet lag on the weekend although in the right direction because you're getting more sleep but then when it comes to Monday and you have to get up a couple of hours early you are feeling intense jet lag on that Monday morning and you're gradually getting over it by the time Friday comes around and then you're off to New Zealand again so it's very problematic in terms of lining up your body clock and actually feeling refreshed when you wake up. So true. It really is. I've started getting up, like I'm quite an early riser. I'm a morning person. So I normally get up about five. Um, but 
I've start I've continued to get up at five on the weekends because it just gets so damn hot here. And if you want to go and you know take your dog for a walk or whatever, if you're walking at eight, my God, it's so hot. <laughs> it's like doing it in a sauna. <laughs> so I've continued to get up at five, even in summer. And you are right, it's really helped. It's very, it's very, very helpful in terms of consistency. And even if I've had a late night before, I find that getting up on time, it's still way better than having a lion, right? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And what you're also doing in terms of going out and exposing yourself to natural light early in the day is that that is another health habit that I talk about in the sleep section, which is awesome. Go, Ed. That is great. (laughs) You're you're totally crushing it. Um, So what is happening is that um, there are certain receptors in your eye that are taking in the natural light and it's making them go, okay, it's Dame time. It's time to um, wake up and be alert. And it's, it's basically resetting your body clock. So in the book, I talk about the importance of having, um, like certainly have a, a normal water shower for hygiene reasons, but have a light shower as well. So just expose yourself, your eyes to natural light, ideally get outside, but even just sit near a window where you've got lots of natural light coming in and that will do a great job at resetting your body clock so that you start to feel more alert and then you also will gradually start to feel tired at the right time of day at night. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And especially, you know, if like me from the UK or you're from one of those colder countries that gets so dark in the winter, like one of the big things I struggle with is when I go back for Christmas or whatever, or I'll go back in the winter, is that when the the you don't get that light in the morning and you don't get that light in the evening, man, I really noticed that. A hundred percent. It's it's definitely uh, one of those things that can make a massive difference to us. Absolutely. It is. And if you are one of those people that are um that, that that are in a place where the like you're just not getting natural light when you need it in the morning, getting a light box can be a really good alternative. Mm. So if you know if you hop on to um you know if you Google light box, um it's really easy to buy find a light box. You sort of want the the lux levels, which is essentially the brightness levels, to be over one or two thousand lux levels. And if you just pop that on your kitchen table while you're having breakfast or on your desk when you start work for the day and have that going for, you know, 30 minutes, maybe an hour, that will do the same job um, or a pretty equivalent job as exposing yourself to natural light early in the morning. Genius. I love this. This is so brilliant. And so when it comes to movement, that's another big thing we're going to be thinking about this time of year. You know, like we try and start these crazy health routines. We're going to go and work out for three hours a day and it's going to be every day a week. But that's when you get overwhelmed, right? And it's just, I've been there. It's not a good solution. What you suggest is something called Vilpa. What is this and how does it work? Yes. So Vilpa, um, which is an acronym, uh, but all we need to know is what VILPA is all about is it's basically vigorous activity that is just happening um, kind of incidentally during your day. Mm -hmm. So an example of VILPA, so VILPA doesn't involve the gym or any exercise equipment. VILPA are bursts of around about a minute or two of intense physical activity that happen as we're going about our day. So for example, if you've ever been um, running late to catch your train to work and you sprint the last 100 metres, 
that is an example of Vilpa. If you have ever played chasey or tag with your kids and run around after them, maybe done like a, you know, a one minute sprint to catch them, that is an example of Vilpa. So it's basically where you exert yourself for about a minute, but it's just kind of happening as you go about your day-to-day activities for some of us. Now, what researchers have found when they've compared people who have um, just accidentally, in, in terms of the research, incorporated three or four bouts of VILPA throughout their day, compared to people who didn't have any VILPA during their day, is that they actually significantly reduced their mortality rates in terms of dying wow. prematurely, all from just that incidental exercise. So by knowing that, you can go, like, you know, if you're someone that perhaps feels like they don't have time to do a 30-minute workout at the gym or something like that, at a minimum, just try to find three one-minute slots in your day where you can incorporate some incidental but, you know, pretty high-intensity exercise like running to the train or running up the just stairs. always be late for the train. Always be late <laughs> for the train. If that is the only thing you take out from this interview, be late for the train. <laughs> I love it though, because so many of us think, you know, oh, you know, if I'm not going and doing an hour workout and I'm not at max capacity for a full hour, there's no point. When in actual fact, the opposite's true, right? Mm, Exactly, exactly. So you can find, um, you can, you can get a lot out of very short amounts of time if you go intense um you know there's yes. several examples in the book and 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 certainly you know with some of the professors that I interviewed who were professors in exercise science or physiology they were often doing things um like having habits say when they were making a coffee at work they would use that one minute time where they're waiting for the coffee extraction to happen to just do a set of squats or something like that um yes. or if you're at home maybe just doing a few burpees Um, Just finding those incidental one-minute slots in your day to do that can have a huge impact on your health. And I guess if you tie it to something like making your coffee or, you know, waiting for your coffee at the coffee shop or waiting for the bus, then that's going to be a natural trigger. I've tried to do this. I'm trying to bloody do more pelvic floor exercises and I'm trying to like fit my kegels into the day and I've started to do this like just tying it to things so like for me now I think whenever I try whenever I'm tempted to just reach my phone to kill the time I think no do a set of kegels and then reach the phone right (laughs) tying it to those things that you do in everyday life that's helpful it's a really good strategy yeah (laughs) yeah love it okay that's great and so as well as Vilpa One of the other amazing bits of research that you include in the book um, is about going for a short walk after we eat. What's this and why is this so helpful? So this is all about uh, blood glucose or blood sugar levels, which I imagine some people listening have probably heard of before. Yeah. Um, Certainly what scientists agree on, and there are lots of things they don't agree on, but what they do agree (laughs) on is trying to keep your blood glucose levels as stable as possible during the day. And if you've ever had the experience of, say, eating a meal that's maybe, um, you know, really sugary, for example, or highly processed, you might have had that experience of getting a bit of a sugar high, but then getting a Mm -hmm. crash soon after. Um, Or, you know, a lot of us experience that mid-afternoon slump where our energy is just feeling low. That is an example of a blood sugar crash. 
And so to feel like we've got a good and sustained amount of energy throughout the day as opposed to having these highs and lows and highs and, and lows, which also impacts our mood as well, any strategy that is going to help stabilize our blood glucose or blood sugar level, I use those terms interchangeably, is a really helpful strategy. So what scientists have found is that regardless of what you eat in a meal, a great hack for stabilizing your blood sugar after you've eaten a meal, whether it be, you know, um, like grilled chicken and broccoli and brown rice or a big <laughs> bowl of spaghetti bolognese, whatever it is, about half an hour after that meal, go for a 10-minute walk. It can just be a stroll. It doesn't have to be a power walk. Just go for a walk around the block. And that goes a really long way to stabilizing blood glucose. So I love that. It's such a simple hack, but it will have huge benefits for just how you feel and avoiding that post-meal slump. Genius. I love this, but now I'm never going to be able to avoid taking the dog out for the last pee. Like normally I send my husband out with the dog. I think, no, nah, I'm just going to nip off yeah. to bed. But now, you know, that last pee is going to be my job too. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Mm. Just around the block, mm. right? Again, simple things. And so when when it comes to like the nutrition side of things and what we are actually eating, one of the things that we should all be steering clear of, or at least minimizing in our diet, are something called HPFs. Mm. What are they and why can they throw us off when it comes to nutrition? So these are hyperpalatable foods is the technical term. And Mm -hmm. if you think about um, any food that is Moorish, whether it be something sweet or something salty and savory, that's an example of an HPF, which essentially Mm -hmm. in terms of um, what's going on in your brain, in terms of the chemical response, is it's kind of like the same response as when you have drugs that are addictive. So if you've, you know, ever felt like you're a bit addicted to sugar and certainly I was massively Mm -hmm. addicted to sugar for a good few decades of my life. I I managed to kick that habit nearly 10 years ago. Um, You're you're probably uh, at the mercy of HPFs and eating too many of them. So typically they're foods that are sugary or they're savoury foods that are quite high in sodium, which makes them taste really salty and also probably quite high in fat. So there's certain equations that, that I cover in the book that defines technically speaking, what an HPF is. But the bottom line is that they're kind of like um, drugs in terms of how addictive they are. And most of them tend to be these hyper-processed foods, right? Things that are like, you know, are in those packages, they're they're really, really like snacky foods, those kinds of things. So why are they so problematic when it comes to our diet and our nutrition? Why can they end up throwing us off so much? Well, what happens when we eat less processed foods that don't have the, the same ratios in terms of sugar and saltiness and fat is that when we're eating the, the, the less processed foods, more natural foods, if you like, um, what happens in terms of the signaling, signaling to our brain is that after we've eaten a meal of, um, you know, a good size for us, is that they send the message to our brain that we're full and we don't need to eat more. But the problem with HPFs, because they're so addictive and they they signal um, and activate the reward center of our brain, is that our brain kind of misses mm. the I'm full signal 
because it's getting so caught up in how good these foods and these tastes are making us feel. So it ultimately leads to us eating more than we need. And if we're eating more than our body actually needs, then we're going to gain weight. And one of the things that I have um, really focused on, because I'm really into like intuitive eating, uh, I've done a few episodes on it, and it's definitely something that has helped completely change my life and get rid of that um, diet culture like mentality. One of the things I've really focused on is actually taking the time to think about it, especially when I'm eating these kinds of foods, like take the time, think about the not only the taste, but how it makes you feel. And I think like the thing is with a lot of these kinds of foods is that you'll eat them when you're watching telly or when you're on the go or like for a snack and you're not being mindful of what the taste is actually like and whether you like them. And when you actually stop for a minute to think about if you like the taste, 90% 90% of the time, I actually don't even enjoy those foods, right? It's it's that weird thing that is designed to keep you going and kind of distracted. And because we're so distracted so much of the time, one of the things that I've really focused on is like being super mindful when I'm eating those kinds of foods and actually thinking about how it makes you feel afterwards mm. too. I think it's really helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it can be about retraining your taste buds. Like I, I was a massive sugar addict. Um, I yeah. would need sugar every day, multiple day, times a day to survive. And and for me, it, it all came to a head when my daughter, she's nine now, but at the time she was three months old, I was a, a sleep deprived mom at home yeah. and, um, you know, just getting like, you know, when I was pregnant with Frankie, just going by uh, the sugar, it was, it was a shop called, I think, sugar station or something like that there was basically a shop full of mixed lollies and I had this ritual that yeah. I'd be walking to the station and I'd go get a bag of mixed lollies on the way home from work oh. every day um and then anyway when I when I had Frankie the sugar addiction was pretty intense which it yeah. also it, it gets more intense when you're sleep deprived and you've also got mm-hmm. less willpower reserves and I remember one night in in the kitchen I was looking around for a sweet treat and there was like there was nothing in the fridge there was nothing desserty I went to the pantry there was like literally no chocolate no biscuits nothing and I thought I need my sugar hit and I spotted a Tupperware of Tupperware container of raw sugar and I thought this will have to do and so I got it no. out and I got the teaspoon and I literally started spooning out raw sugar from the Tupperware container and my my husband he's not my husband anymore not because of this incident but uh (laughs) he walked in and he's like Amanda what are you doing and that was the moment I thought I I really need to kick this sugar addiction and so I did I mean I certainly applied a lot of the the habit change strategies that I talk about in the book um and and one of the things I did is that I just went cold turkey. I am a bit of an all or nothing person. And yeah. what the um, the researchers and scientists that I interviewed in the health habit said is that it can take a few weeks for your health habits to readjust. So if you strip, um, you know, processed sugary uh, snacks and treats out of your diet, it takes a few weeks. But what you'll notice is that things like carrots, for example, or pumpkin start to taste really sweet. Um, Whereas if you're used to feeding those taste buds um, chocolate and other more intense and artificial flavours, then you don't get that same effect. So I guess the bottom line is that when you are 
changing the way that you eat and trying to be more mindful and more intuitive and strip out a lot of these hyperpalatable foods, your taste buds will readjust and things that previously did not taste sweet will start to taste very sweet. This is so true. I once did a year without sugar because my husband bet me I couldn't and I did. So, ha. Huh. But I am, um, I honestly, by the end of it, I was like, fruit was the most delicious thing I'd ever tasted. Again, like you say, stuff like carrots and everything just tasted so much better. It's a hundred percent true. I really, really believe that. If you're looking to make a healthy habit this year when it comes to eating and your nutrition, you foods could well be the answer you're looking for. They take the mental load of meal prepping and deliver gourmet, nutritionally balanced meals, fresh, never frozen, right to your door. All you do is hop online and choose what you like the look of from over 60 meals that are constantly being tweaked and added to, so they're more delicious than ever. Make sure to use my code HELPFUL for up to $200 off your first five boxes. You'll find a link in the show notes and I'll pop that code in there too. Um, so when it comes to making these st habits stick, one of our challenges is motivational hijackers. And in the book, you talk about all these different hi uh, hijackers that come and try and throw us off. What are motivational hijackers and how can we ensure we don't they don't ruin our efforts? Yeah, motivational hijackers are, are, are very important. And, um, and so in the book there, I talk about four main habit hijackers. And what's really important if you're um, like stuck in, in a cycle of unhealthy habits or you're trying to make change is identifying that it's not about one size fits all. Because if you've ever read a book on habit change, it's easy to think, oh, well, I just have to, you know, change the, the cue or the trigger or the reward and it is one size fits all and there's a formula. But actually what we know mm -hmm. from research is it's about identifying what is your specific barrier. So motivational yeah. barriers are one of those four barriers or hijackers I talk about. Um, motivational barriers is where, you know, if you think about a change that maybe you've wanted to make and perhaps you've seen the doctor and the doctor said, you know, Ed, um, you know, look, I know that, um, you know, like you're, you're really busy and stuff, but you're just not prioritizing sleep. But really for your health, you really have to do that. And so fine, the doctor's saying you have to, but do you actually want to? And mm. that's kind of where the divide is. Sometimes we feel like we have to do something because maybe the doctor's said so, or our partner's said so, or our friends are telling us that, or the media is telling us that. But if we don't actually want to do it, if we're resisting it, then there's a motivational hijacker at play. And so there are different strategies I talk about for um, overcoming that because what we want to do is we want to make the change desirable. That's how we can overcome mm. a motivational hijacker. Um, the, the strategy that I use most in terms of the ones that I write about in the book is a strategy called temptation bundling. Um, and, and, and I don't know, Ed, if you've ever, if you've ever used this, but like for me, um, one of the things that I really hate doing um is exercise bike riding but I know that it's good yeah. for me I know that the exercise bike that I've got it's got different protocols programmed in and I know it's really good for my cardio fitness and that's really important for my health but I just find it so boring um <laughs> in the meantime I am I'm 
I, I'm I'm not a huge reality TV junkie, but I love and and this is I'm I'm, I'm just going to lose all credibility with listeners by revealing this. But <laughs> this is a safe space. It's a safe space. Martha. Thank you, Ed. Thank you. Um, I I love The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Oh, um, it yes. has to be the US series because that's the cheesiest oh, yeah. and the bitchiest. But I love it. But I just. I feel so guilty sitting down on the couch to watch it. Um, And so what I've done is I have combined the thing that I really don't want to do, which is exercise bike riding, with this guilty pleasure, which for me I find very enjoyable. And so temptation bundling is where you take the thing that you don't want to do and you combine it with the thing that you do derive a lot of pleasure from. So I get my iPad, I prop it up onto the exercise bike and I very, very slowly work my way through seasons of The Bachelor. And the 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 joy and the pleasure that I get from watching The Bachelor and the mindlessness of the show takes away from the pain of the exercise bike. And that is temptation bundling. Genius. I love it. Yeah, I can get into that. Anything that involves more reality TV, I, I do love. For me, it's 90 Day Fiance, and that's very guilty. I, my husband won't let me watch it when he's in the room because he's just so terrible. But I, it won't stop me. It won't stop me. Um, and so, one of the other uh, things is environmental hijackers. So, you know, if people are, like you said, it's very personal. And if people are wondering what's stopping them, maybe it could be environmental hijackers. What are they and what what should we be looking out for there? Yeah, so environmental hijackers is where literally the, the physical environment and the situations that you're finding yourself in are actually getting in the way of you making a change. So mm. a really simple example here is let's just say you are trying to eat less hyperpalatable foods or less highly processed foods, for example, but for whatever reason, your pantry is full of chips and muesli bars um, and other things that are highly... Bags of sugar in your case. Bags of sugar. Although theoretically, <laughs> bags of sugar are not addictive um, because they don't have the, the, the sort of the magic ratio. Um, but, um, but, but like if you're living in a household with that sort of situation or, you know, let's just say, you know, you're trying to improve the, the way that you sleep and if your charging station for your phone is yeah. by your bed... That is an environmental hijacker getting in the way of making habit change easier. So in that section of the book, we talk about how can you make change um, just really natural by changing or manipulating the physical environment and the situations that you find yourself in. Um, So like, for example, um, in my own life, um, you know, and in the book, um, talk about the, the power of the position or position power. And this is thinking about, Let's say there's a habit that you're trying to create and it's about doing Mm -hmm. more of a behavior. So for me, a habit that I am currently working on is to try to have more more fermented foods with with most of my meals. So essentially this comes from a health habit in the book around eating your probiotics as opposed to spending lots of money um, in that very special section of the chemist that has those Mm -hmm. refrigerated tablets um, when, when really, you know, the easier option and the cheaper and the more effective option is to eat your probiotics. So I'm trying to eat fermented vegetables um, with every meal and I've got a couple of jars in the fridge. Um, What I was finding is that those jars would gradually sort of move more and more towards the back of the fridge and would be completely (laughs) hidden and I'd get to the end of the week 
And I'd be like, oh my gosh, I haven't eaten any fermented vegetables with any of my meals. Um, I'm a failure, yet here I am like writing this book about health habits. And so what I did really simply is that I just created a space um, at eye level in the fridge and it was always just at the very front part of the shelf where I'd put these two jars of fermented vegetables. And it's kind of annoying because I sort of have to put things behind them, but they basically stay front and center so that when I open the fridge, when I'm preparing a meal, they are there. They're really obvious. And the natural thing to do is to reach for them when I'm doing food prep and get them out, put them on the kitchen bench, and they just naturally make it into my meals. Genius. Yeah, I do that with my iron supplements too, and then I never forget, and they're just they're so simple, so effective. And sometimes, though, you know, we can talk about motivational hijackers and environmental hijackers and other types of hijackers, but sometimes our biggest challenge is our own bloody brain. <laughs> How might it be working against us when it comes to forming new habits? Yeah, so this is another type of hijacker that I talk about in the book, the cognitive hijackers, and this is so yeah. common. Like, particularly, um, you know, if you finished 2023, just feeling exhausted, tired, burnt out, like the last thing on your mind was going, I'm going to be healthier. But hopefully in January, it's, you know, it's it's the fresh start effect, which I also write about in the book. Um, But you're kind of feeling like a bit renewed, but maybe you're not. Maybe you are feeling a bit worn down and you didn't have a proper break. And you're Mm. just like, I know, you know, that um, there's probably some things that I want to change, but I'm just so exhausted. And so this Mm -hmm. is where um, there's a whole section on strategies to make change easy, which is what we want to do if we've got a cognitive hijacker in the way. Um, Probably my um, my favorite strategy from this chapter, which I have used so many times in my real life and uh, in my real life, in my life rather, not in my fake life, but in the real one, Ed. Um, But yeah, no, I've used this so often when I'm trying to change behavior. And I used this a lot when I was trying to quit sugar um, is the power of the word don't. So there's some interesting research done by uh, a marketing professor called Vanessa Patrick. And what she was interested in is could the language of self-talk that we use actually help us make healthier choices. And so Mm -hmm. she got a bunch of people into the lab, was teaching them about healthy, um, like sort of health-promoting strategies. And then the crux of the experiment happened when participants were leaving the lab um, because they were offered two snacks, a choice of snacks. So they were offered a chocolate bar or they were offered um, essentially a health food bar or a granola bar, as they call them in America. And one group of people were taught to use the self-talk strategy, I can't eat that um, because you know, it doesn't align with my health goals, like eating the chocolate bar. The other half of the group were told to use the self-talk, I don't eat that. So I don't eat chocolate, for ah. example. So I can't versus I don't. Those that had the self-talk strategy, I don't eat chocolate or I don't eat unhealthy snacks, um, chose the healthier snack significantly more. In fact, 50% more. So thinking about what is a habit that you're trying to break? In my case, it was an addiction to sugar. So I was trying to um, retrain my brain that eating sugary snacks was just not something I did. So whenever I was faced with that choice, or maybe like I was out um, for a meal with friends and people were deciding on dessert, my self-talk, but also my actual talk to my friends or my partner was that 
I don't eat sugar. I don't do dessert. Um, I don't have sweet treats. And so that literally became my self-talk, which then what it does is it kind of tricks you into going, oh, well, that's that's my identity. And as humans, we don't want to do yes. things that are inconsistent with our self-identity. I've heard this before too in um... – I can't remember where I've heard it actually, but in being like, no, I'm, I'm the person, you know, I'm the kind of person who exercises every day. I'm the kind of person who doesn't eat that kind of thing. I'm the kind of person who prioritizes my mental health. You know, like that's a big part of who I am. And when you kind of reframe that, as you say, as a big part of your identity, when you don't do those things, you feel like you're lying to yourself. I really like that. I think it's, it's so key, isn't it? Cause so many times, so many of us think of ourselves as like, not exercise people or not like uh, health food people or not, you know, people who are good with money when in actual fact, if we turn it into something that's like becomes part of our identity, it's so much easier to commit to that. I really like that. So helpful. And so the thing that occurred to me is that there's so many brilliant habits in the book, so many useful ways to stick to them. But when can we figure out if the habits we're trying to implement are ones that work for us or they're things that we just genuinely don't enjoy? You know, like there's so many types of exercise that I adore. There's so many types of exercise that I hate. Like where do we draw the line and figure out, okay, yeah, that's just not something I'm ever going to enjoy. Let's let's leave it and find an alternative. It's a good question. And I mean, like the, the habits that I talk about in the book are generally – they're quick to do. Um, I do yeah. rate them in terms of degrees of difficulty. So some are easier to do than others, but generally they're pretty short. They don't take too much time as opposed to, say, um, deciding that I'm going to be a Pilates goer, which is, you know, if yeah. I'm going three times a week, there's, you know, three hours of Pilates <laughs> class plus travelling to, to the class. Um, so that's the first thing. But what I do recommend in the book and this is just a philosophy that I adopt in my life in general, is that I see everything as an experiment and typically a seven-day experiment because you can do anything for seven days. Um, so like one of the experiments that I was running while I was writing The Health Habit is using um, what's called a CGM or Continuous Glucose Monitor which is something um, I also uh, kind of bullied my, my partner into doing the same thing. Um, but, <laughs> but if you've never heard of a CGM before, imagine um, a device the size of um, like a squashed ping pong ball. Uh, it's like a little bit of plastic that's got a needle sticking out of it. And, and um, I mean, as soon as... I've seen people wearing yeah. these. I could never work out what they were. Yeah, yeah. So they're... Um, I mean, they were designed for people with diabetes and essentially what they do yeah. is they continuously monitor your blood glucose levels, which we talked about before, which is really important. You want them to be as yeah. stable as possible. And so you wear this device, you kind of stick it um, sort of like where your triceps are, the back of your arm typically yeah. is where people stick it. And the needle is essentially, uh, because it's it's um, penetrating the skin, it's getting a continuous read on your blood glucose levels. And I will add, this sounds pretty horrible the idea of having a needle stuck in you and you typically wear it for for two weeks is is about how mm -hmm. how long most devices are designed to be worn but it's not actually painful so I 
hate needles. I hate injections. Um, and I was so scared when my, um, my partner put it on me. I was bracing myself for pain, but actually I didn't even feel anything. It's, um, it's very, very manageable. Um, the device itself costs about a hundred dollars. So it's a bit of an investment, but it's one of the best experiments I've run because what you can, yeah, so what you can do is that, um, you know, people, give all sorts of advice around food and, you know, eat mm-hmm. food with like a, a lower GI, you're better off having wholemeal food rather than, um, or wholemeal bread even rather than white bread. But actually our individual blood glucose response to foods varies wildly based on individual factors. And so by wearing a CGM, you can actually run experiments with different types of meals and food combinations and oh, also incorporating things like going for a 10-minute walk after a meal to see what is going to uh, give you the most stable blood glucose levels. So, for example, one of the things that I found when I was doing this experiment is that I, I used to love porridge, like having a bowl of porridge. Oh, I love porridge, like, yeah. Like delicious. But I found, and and, you know, like general health advice would say, Porridge is a healthy food. But for me, porridge really spiked my blood glucose levels. So I would find I would eat a bowl of porridge thinking I'm doing a really great thing for my health, but it would spike really high and then it would drop. And I would feel really low in energy and grumpy and then hungry, um, you know, half an hour after eating a big bowl of porridge. And through this CGM experiment, I then was able to learn why that was the case. And so I don't really eat porridge anymore. How interesting. That's so cool. That could be something that I could really get hooked on that. (laughs) I would get really addicted to those numbers. Um, So tell me if, you know, there's so many brilliant habits in the book. There are so many great ways of making these habits stick. What's the one thing you want us to remember? What I want people to remember is that habit change is really individual. So certainly in the health habit, there are lots of different strategies and any one of those is going to have a significant effect on improving your health, whether it be getting more energy, sleeping better, eating better, moving better. Um, But like really the real change comes from making habits stick. And what I want people to understand is that if you fail to make a habit stick in the past, it's possibly because you just used a strategy that wasn't overcoming your specific barrier. So I want people to understand habit change is a very personal thing. And what the book helps you do is identify, and there's an assessment in the book to identify what is the barrier getting in the way for you of making change. And then based on that, there are strategies to help make that change actually stick for good. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Amantha. I really appreciate your time. As always, incredibly fascinating. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Ed. Dr. Amantha Imber is an organisational psychologist and the founder of Behaviour Change Consultancy Inventium. Her book is called The Health Habit. I'm going to pop a link to it in the show notes so that you can check it out. She also has a podcast called How I Work. I'll pop that in the show notes too. And don't forget, this special bonus episode was brought to you by You Foods. If you're looking to make a healthy shift this new year when it comes to healthy eating, You Foods could well be the answer you're looking for. Make sure to use my code HELPFUL for up to $200 off your first five boxes. I'm Ed Stott and I sincerely hope that's helpful.